0: Tune in to hear about rising customization, recent shifts in product innovation, how the industry is evolving from one offering products to one offering services, and why listening is perhaps the greatest skill of all. Our next guest builds sustainable investment solutions and issues research on a range of topics from impact investing to net zero targets to nature-based solutions to the energy transition. In this series, as a special treat, we are featuring the music of one of our guests in the series, Julia Kwamea. You can find the link to Julia's Spotify album in the show notes. I'm Ethan Devitt, and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Ben Phillips, who is Head of Asset Management, Global Advisory Services at Broadridge Financial Solutions based in New York. He's had a long background in consulting at firms such as Casey Quirk, Deloitte, and Cerulli Associates, and has focused for much of his career on the dynamics and evolution of the asset management industry. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about how you see the asset management industry today, since it's an area that fascinates me for obvious reasons. But let's start just by talking about your background, where you grew up and how you came to enter the world of finance.
1: So I grew up, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a very small town about an hour north of Scranton and about half an hour south of Binghamton had one stoplight. And it was a stoplight actually that had red, yellow, green on one side, green, yellow, red on the other, because they could only afford one bulb for each point in the stoplight. It was that small. And it's nice growing up in a small town and that you know everybody. It's bad growing up in a small town in that you know everybody. And caught a bug for writing when I was in high school, went to undergrad for journalism at Boston University, fell in love with that city. I still miss that city. And when I got out of college, like most kids that get out of college, I needed to make rent. And I started working for local newspapers, covering fires, covering robberies, running around in the middle of the night. And I said, there's got to be a better way to make a living than this. And I saw a—they're used to—I I don't even know if they exist anymore. A classified ad, a job wanted ad for a financial reporter. And I said, it can't be that hard. Quickly sitting down with a copy of the Wall Street Journal on a park bench, it is that hard. So I tried to learn how bonds work and stocks worked. at least try to be able to fake my way through the interview. And I I did fake my way through the interview, got the job. And my first job was really to start covering what institutional investors bought and sold in terms of asset managers for a trade publication. And that's where I got involved in the industry. The editor of that publication, a man named Richard Chimberg, he's still nearly 30 years later, one of my dearest friends. But it was an unexpected entry into what's really a very unique financial services industry. And have been stuck with it ever since.
0: Talk us through then moving from reporting on it to consulting about it, because that clearly takes a, a whole new level of a mastery. How did that occur?
1: That happened because as you start reporting, you meet a lot of people. And so you meet asset management executives, you meet consultants in the asset management industry. And what's great about this industry is there's so many people and there's so many different people and types of people. And I happened to be writing a long story on international asset management and basically ended up talking with a lot of people at Cerule Associates, which is a consultancy that looks at the asset management industry. And that conversation just began to unfold. And as a result, I ended up starting to work there. That was Andrew Goulet, who now works with me at Broadridge. Geez, Ethan, that was 25 years ago. But as with a lot of things in asset management, and if you talk to executives in the industry, portfolio managers, salespeople, you get common stories. This is an industry that brings together people by accident. In a lot of cases, they get interested intellectually in something, they get into a conversation before you know it, they're working for a fund manager, they're working for an advisory firm and off you go. And so my story is not that much different than what you'll find from a lot of executives and a lot of people involved in the industry.
0: Well, I've been waiting to have this conversation for some time, but it seems fortuitous now that we're at the 25 year point for you because that's the nice kind of neat quarter, quarter century to look back on on the trends and evolution. I'm sure you've seen some dramatic trends and some aspects become extinct, some take shape and then die a death, and then some really be sustainable, some of the changes in asset management. So let's go through some of the changes that you've talked about in a recent white paper and report, which we can put in the show notes. But let's talk about maybe starting with in terms of evolution of demand. You've spoken about demand growing for customization of product. Can you talk us through what you mean by that?
1: Sure. So if you... So 25 years, let's use that frame. 25 years ago, when I began in the industry, most portfolios, most buyers, most institutions were oriented around accumulation. They were oriented around how do we take a portfolio and make it bigger? And it makes sense, right? The baby boom was saving for retirement. A whole series of institutional investors were created to help them do that you had capital accounts growing in countries and they were building sovereign funds to invest and grow. So the entire industry was oriented around one initiative, one objective, one consultant's big use case, right? And as a result, you would see a lot of the industry's infrastructure, plumbing, goals, structure, strategies around how do we make these portfolios bigger? Fast forward to today, baby boom retiring. And as a result, their outcomes are starting to become much more heterogeneous, much more divergent. Some people need income right away. Some people can continue to save. Some people want to fund grandchildren's educations. The needs of those portfolios and why they're existing are becoming much more, they're becoming a wider spectrum of of outcomes. And as that happens, what you're also seeing happen is younger investors as they come in See savings as a different means to an end. And what I mean by that is they're interested in accumulation, but they're interested in paying down debt. They're interested in non financial objectives. They're interested in thinking about when I make investments, what does that mean for the world around me? What does that mean for what the world is going to become? And the decisions that they make around which stocks, the decisions about they make about how they save are quite different than the parents, and they're quite different from each other. So, you have an industry that built itself around we make a lot of money, we make a lot of profit leverage by doing the same thing for everybody. Now, they're facing the fact that they actually have to do different things for different people. And that's the big change in its economics. It's really no longer as scalable.
0: You know, some of this customization is certainly around individual. That might be the role, I suppose, of the private wealth manager, the financial advisor, the intermediary. Do you see that also at an institutional level, say for a pension fund itself, needing something customized? And I'm thinking not only of maybe income aspect or maybe time period, but equally exclusions tailored around a certain mission.
1: You hit it all. I mean, it's around pure asset liability management. So we now have technology. We now have actuarial work. We now have a variety of portfolio constructs that help a pension fund say, I actually can fine tune cash flow streams specifically to an end. I can figure out how I will finish out the defined benefit plan. I can figure out exactly how I'm dealing with a shifting demographic in my employee eBase. So all of that's becoming more doable. That's one. Mission is another. What exactly am I doing with these assets? Particularly if you expand that from pension plans into endowments into sovereign funds, what's the role of the savings that we've accumulated and how do we want that to work? That's important. Shifting generations, what older retirees have looked for in their pension output may not be what younger savers and retirement plans are looking for as they begin their careers and younger employees don't stay in their careers as long as their fathers and mothers did. And so, all of that is in the institutional world leading to how do we customize, particularly as investing gets more volatile, it's also about how do we manage the risk of investing? How do we fine tune that part of the equation? And so the customization dynamic isn't just a individualization. It's about all portfolios at all sizes.
0: And that suggests to me that you really need a much more intelligent and also efficient product development function because it needs to be tuned in. It also can't take two years in that you see a shift in client demand. You need to be able to adapt, innovate, get there before the crowd. Do you see that that has been that adaptation has been made in asset managers?
1: I don't think it's been made. And I think that if you talk to CEOs and leaders of asset management firms right now, that's one of the biggest questions that they're grappling with. You nailed it with what you just said. The product development life cycle and the product development process is becoming a lot more complicated for a number of reasons. Personalization, like we just talked about. The fact that for the first time in decades, we're in a rising rate environment, which means many products on the shelf aren't as fit for purpose as they used to be, if they're fit for purpose at all. That's a big function. And if we're in a world where risk has more velocity, and what do I mean by that? When geopolitics happens in a much tighter timeframe. We have much more volatility in market performance because we can trade a lot faster and we can trade in bulk. If you put all of these things together, the life cycle for a product is shorter. The need to come up with new products is more acute. And the ability to get that right quickly is a superpower if an asset manager can get it. We've done a lot of work looking at what's a successful launch. And we're starting to find after looking at 20 years of data of fund launches, and we're just focused on funds right now, but we're starting to see it applies to institutional mandates as well. That if you don't get to $100 million in the first year after raising a public securities fund, we're talking about stocks and bonds and liquid investments, the chances of you getting to a billion drop dramatically. They dropped to about one in five. That's pretty daunting math, particularly for an industry that said, can't we just throw a bunch of securities into an envelope and get started and we'll see what happens? And won't distributors give us three years anyway to get a track record and give us some slack to get things up and running? neither are true anymore. So getting product development right, and making sure that when you innovate, you're not only successful in coming up with a good idea, but executing on it. This is what will separate winning asset managers from losing asset managers going forward. It's tough. Think about pharma has a really well-developed R&D function. Asset management needs something similar. If the track record of R&D and asset management were applied to pharma, we'd probably be in a lot worse shape globally in terms of health. But that type of approach of thinking through how do we test, how do we learn what products we need to meet more personalized demand, that's all going to be really important going forward.
0: And this raises a lot of really interesting issues about the kind of shape and size of asset managers that will be... Well, equipped to do this because an RD function needs somewhat deep pocket scale to support. Yeah. Getting to the 100 million for a large asset manager, that can be essentially just one check that can come yeah. from a proprietary capital. Equally, it puts the boutique funds a lot more at stake in terms of not being able to perhaps get to that scale. So, what does this mean for the kind of survival of boutiques and the survival of large players, and maybe also how the large players need to think? about that R&D function?
1: So it's a really really great question. When we did the research, we began with the assumption, exactly as you said, isn't this partly a function of seed capital? Isn't this partly a function of having talent and having enough people and enough resources to think through R&D? So shouldn't big firms be naturally much better at this? But when you look at the 50 largest asset managers globally and you look at their growth growth, over the five years, I think our most recent one looked at it ending 2021. So that's the most complete data set. Only about 22 of the top 50 grew faster than the industry. The rest grew slower than the industry. In a marketplace where asset managers are valued, if they grow, so if you're a publicly traded asset manager, your multiple is most impacted by how much organic growth you can create. That's a big deal. And part of the function is, yes, seed capital helps. But do you have a product development process that's strategic enough to think through how do we take our best capabilities, those that are most differentiated, and apply those to a product and do it in a way where we can raise assets quickly? And some of the functions there are talent, but it's also data. Can we use data as leverage to map part of the marketplace at a greater level of granularity so we know that we're actually creating something that people will buy? Part of it is being nimble. And that's not necessarily what big firms are great at. So can we get something done quickly? And part of it is, to be honest, being willing to break glass. It's hard to stop making bad products in this industry. They still make revenue. You can have a fund that's not growing at all, throwing off 60 basis points of revenue. And... It's very hard to come up with a case about why you should divert resources from that, even if you know it's not growing, even if you know it's slowly melting away. So I think boutiques, smaller firms, mid-sized firms, because they're able to make that pivot from old product to new product much more cleanly, much more quickly, they actually might have an advantage over big firms on things like this. And so okay. it's a open field for competition. The fact that new products are where flows will go means it's a jump ball for both the large and the small asset managers competing with one another.
0: That's interesting. So still value in being nimble, clearly, even if, but obviously once you're at a certain critical mass, you need to be able to be nimble. I'd love to know what you think this means for, we've seen a trend of large firms, like say Blackstone and BlackRock, getting very diversified, having something in every aspect of that asset allocation pie. We've seen many firms actually have missteps in taking on alternative holdings, maybe less liquid holdings compared to their Mm -hmm. public and trying to sandwich those together. What do you see as the future of those large diversified financial firms? And will everybody ultimately have to be diversified?
1: I don't think so. I think we're in an industry where it's ironic. It used to grow so much by itself organically that firms could just make money standing still. So back 25 years ago, The industry globally was growing at about 6% a year. That's just new money coming into the industry. So there was a lot of tailwind from just inertia. Inertia was a great ally of the industry. You could do a lot really just riding the industry's coattails of growth. That going forward for the next decade is probably going to be about 2%, which means it's growing a third as fast. So... If you're trying to grow and 3% is the rate where you can usually see impact on the multiple, you're not going to benefit solely from taking money from the industry marketplace and from just inertia, that ally. You're going to have to compete. You're going to have to claw some of that from somebody else. And I think the many industry players are telling us that they're realizing they haven't really been built to compete because you have 5,000 firms, offering relatively similar product like we just talked about, similar engagement and growing. You didn't need to figure out how to differentiate yourself from one another. Now they do. And so simply having something in every style box, simply having something in every pie of the and wedge of the allocation, that's not going to be enough to compete. And in fact, if anything, it's a drag because if you're not standing out in asset classes where there's a lot of entrenched competition, It's just throwing costs after less revenue and less growth. So what does work? Focusing on asset classes where you have a clear competitive advantage, not just in performance, but in process. So I think that helps with investment boutiques who have really strong, high conviction investment strategies and are able to stand out, not just from being a good performing firm, but being a differentiated firm in how they view themselves inside the portfolio and how they invest their money. I think how you deal with a client plays a big role. And that's something that small and big firms get right. So how do you engage with the client in a way where even if your performance starts to suffer because you're offering additional services, because you're thinking through the client's needs and you're helping them come up with solutions, whether you're institutional or whether you're dealing with a big intermediary, these are all going to be big competitive superpowers. Brand is important. So big firms are going to start to say, you know we aren't best in class across all of this. How do we concentrate on where we're best in class? And how do we think about adding services and capabilities that aren't necessarily so finely measured? How do we think about technology? How do we think about adding IP and thought leadership in what we do? How do we think about other elements of constructing a portfolio? Tax optimization, that's been a big discussion in the intermediary space. LDI and asset liability modeling for thinking about how to handle insurers, how to handle sovereign funds. So it's also understanding that asset management is more than just manufacturing and distribution. It's not just you create alpha and wait for some truck to come up and take it off the loading bay. It's about how do we come up with a unique set of capabilities and deliver them in a way that looks far different than anybody else. At one level, it's becoming a service industry more than a product industry. And as it goes through that transition, you're going to see big firms shift to fewer asset classes, more holistic offers, and they may be working with other asset managers through sub-advisory to do that. And then you're going to see smaller mid-sized firms doubling down on what they do really well and aiming to find intriguing new ways to get that to market, working through other asset managers, working through all different types of intermediaries, packaging and using different types of wrappers to get their IP to market. I think you create, rather than having small firms and big firms that are really versions of the same type of asset manager, you'll have a mix of different types of asset managers going forward. And that gets to, I think you'll see more public-private combinations. They're hard to pull off. You know all the stories. We've seen all the stories. But there'll be more and more attempts to pull that together because it blends the high growth of private markets which will continue to grow regardless of how expensive leverage is becoming with the heavy installed base of public securities portfolios. So in five years, the asset managers are going to look a lot different from each other. And they're certainly going to look a lot different from the way they appear now.
0: Really interesting. That word solutions comes up time and time again, not Absolutely. only in terms of the client yes. solutions, you know, and this gets back to your personalization point, your customization point at the beginning. Equally, when I ask, product providers or managers about what kind of products they're most excited and say for the next wave of market demand. And they talk about solutions too. It might be climate solutions, it might be income solutions, uh, other ways. So definitely we're all trying to solve something. We're going to take a short break to hear from the sponsor of this series, With Intelligence. I sat down with Kip McDaniel, President Americas of With Intelligence. I asked Kip, what were the key topics in allocators' minds today?
1: There's some universal stuff and there's some topical stuff. In terms of topics, nothing is nearly as hot right now as private credit. That is coming up at almost every one of our events. You're seeing a ton of launches in that space, a ton of fundraising activity in that space. In terms of more macro topics, there is a sense among the allocator community that there has never been more happening in the world than there is right now. Whether it's geopolitical, policy-wise, regulation-wise, There is a real sense that, you know, it might have seemed tense at the time, but we went through a 10-year period in the last decade that, in retrospect, was quite calm. There wasn't a whole lot that was going on. That sense is very much changed right now.
0: And now, back to the show. Something you said really intrigued me about moving from the product industry to a service industry. Because one of the issues with that, which I agree with, actually, and I welcome, is that products can be measured easily by performance. How do you measure service? And what do you put on your presentation materials that you've given You know, decades of very good client service and your clients are all very happy? I mean, maybe if they vote with their feet and stay, that's an evidence they are happy. But how do you get to measure the service aspect?
1: Well, you hit it right there. It's retention. We think of... Industry success in terms of net flows, which is measurable, right? How much did you bring in? How much did you lose? What's the delta? That's the net flow. If we thought about clients almost on their net present value, so in other words, wrap that all together, what was the cost of acquiring the client? How long did you hold the client? And what were you able to add in services and add in fees to that client over time? If the industry thought like that, they'd make a lot of different decisions. They say, okay, Retention is more important than acquisition. Deepening our relationships with clients, whether they're intermediaries, individuals or institutions, that's really important. We should be making decisions around that. And assets that we have that embrace that idea, things like brand, things like engagement, things like product development, those are more important to win going forward. And so that mentality shift is a change in how to measure it. It's funny. This is an industry that has existed so long without knowing its customer, right? I think that's the institutional world. It's it's certainly the individual world. It goes back to that metaphor I just said, you just throw the alpha on the loading bay and the truck comes and there we go. That's how we make a 35% margin. That's no longer the case. Happily, there's data now that allows the asset management industry to learn more about their clients, not only by asking them, but by running analysis on them. The question is, will they do the right things to meet those demands more specifically? And whoever can get to that first and profitably, they stand a great chance of winning going forward. So, that's the shift in tone, which is it's growth, but growth can come from keeping the clients that you have and helping them grow and benefiting from that as they do. Sounds like standard MBA 101 stuff. But for this industry, these are things they've never had to do given margins that they were so thick. Now they do have to do it. So uh, I think that's the measurement point. Now, what does that number look like? We do a lot of work around that, but it's forget the numbers and the metrics. It's even just shifting the mindset to what do we do with the clients we already have?
0: And that wouldn't be a a discussion on the future of asset management without discussing active versus passive investing and the rise of passive investing, ETFs, et cetera. How do you see that at this juncture, given you've been probably observing this for decades?
1: So I think the, the share of passive in terms of assets, definitely in institutional space, and I think getting there in the retail space, the individual space globally, it's reaching a balance, it's reaching an equilibrium. There's a point where clawing more money out of active and then the passive is going to be tough. There's always talk of a renaissance in volatile markets like we've had of active management. I think in this environment where we're not sure when and how rates level out or fall again, or or maybe rise again. I think these are macro calls that benefit the whole idea of active management. But the bar has risen. That's what we warn active managers when we talk to them. Which is, yes, this is a good time to be talking about all of the benefits of security selection, all the benefits of active portfolio construction. But you have to be really good at it. There is not room for five thousand equally proficient active asset managers, not in this environment, not with how public markets work in terms of information flow and what's available to track those and not in the private marketplace as well, where as you get more and more firms offering private credit, private equity, you will start to get a flight to quality and you will, and quality by performance and quality by engagement. So I think for active managers, this is the time to double down on a number of things, but only the things that you know you do really, really well. Because if you don't do it well, chances are somebody does it better than you, or an index does it better than you all. And that's, I think, some of the sorting out that happens over the next three to four years as we go through a rates environment we haven't seen since the 70s. So it
0: seems like it's never been a time for complacency, but it's certainly not a time for complacency now when it comes...
1: For an active asset management firm, it's also never been as big an opportunity as it could be right now, if strategy is right and you play your cards right.
0: And it's interesting because even if passive is taking share, I think what we're seeing also in the private wealth world, the pie is growing. So, you know, basically, yes, it may take relative more more share, but equally that presents a massive opportunity not only for mainstream public active management, but also all those private strategies you spoke about before, particularly as these private individuals allocate more to that. I'd say the only fair supply may not be growing might be, say, the UK pension arena, for example, which are very much contracting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just last question on the industry is that the AI, which is obviously a pervasive technology now that we're, we're wondering how it will disrupt And in private wealth arena, we wonder, you know, but the robo-advisor encroachment always. How do you see that transforming the world of asset management?
1: So it's interesting with the recent push on AI around large language models and generative AI, it's brought back, some of us has brought back memories of this discussion before, which is anytime there's been a step function change and a significant evolution of AI There's a lot of discussion about, well, can it be used in portfolio management? Can it be used in advisory? So to some extent, the questions are still there. I think this last round doesn't move the needle dramatically on some of that because until AI gets really, really good with complex math, really good about complex logic, which is on the verge of doing, but that's what breaks open how it's being used in portfolio management. So I think we're still waiting for that version of the software to come out to to oversimplify it. Where I think the most recent version really could revolutionize things is around engagement because Using AI to learn more about a client, to quickly bring in a vast amount of data sources, profile a client, and then quickly come out with ways to tackle the client's problems and create this starting point for a financial advisor, for an institutional consultant. I think those could be really interesting thing about it, like para-planning functions within the whole advice spectrum. That is really where this version of AI is going to create a lot of interesting opportunities. Not to discount going forward that you won't see a lot more AI-driven investment management. I don't know if you'll see AI-driven robo-advisors. At the end of the day, this is a trust business. And it's still very hard for investors of any age to trust the algorithm. I still think there's a degree of advice that is visceral, that is human, that's about getting trust in the answer. And AI yeah, can get close to that, but they can't quite do it. So I do think the joke is it took me a while because I wasn't up on my comic book analogies, but it's an Iron Man methodology. You have a human at the center, but increasingly a lot of technology to leverage that heart and that head. And that's what I think this industry will really benefit from going forward.
0: And I can tell you as a consumer of many of these newsletters, et cetera, for managers of a manager, if those newsletters start to be obviously AI generated, you will, lose, you will lose my confidence and trust. I would think that's a lazy method to adopt. Well, let's go back to some reflections. We could spend hours speaking about the future of asset management. It's absolutely fascinating discussion. And we didn't even really touch on the more sustainable investing integration, which we're, we're clearly seeing waves of that. But just going back to your own reflections, were there any in this course of your career, I well suppose setbacks or challenges, or maybe whether that's tracked the industry evolution or or not, that you could you've learned lessons from.
1: Oh, I think there's a lot that I've learned lessons from from being an advisor. The thing that you can immediately trip yourself up on is assuming that because something happened before, it's going to happen again. And I think there are a number of times in my career where I got caught up in the idea that because you think you know how something is going to unfold given your past experience, that's going to be what's going to happen. When ETFs began to get developed, and this is a long time ago, but let's focus on 15 to 20 years ago, I was one of the people who was saying, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. And I was really wrong about that. The thing that I've started to, in my older age, really make myself walk through is not the trust my own history, not to trust my own experience. Yes, that colors it and gives you a starting point. But particularly younger people that I've worked with over the years have been very good about saying, hey, Ben, just because you're old doesn't mean you're right. And I used to take offense at that. But that's actually a really good thing to remind me that starting at the beginning and explaining how you got from A to B, regardless of how much you feel you know the answer already. It's a really critical thing to remember to do every single time. And so that anytime that I've made a wrong call, it's been a good wake up call to remind myself to go back and do that. So I think the nice thing about being a management consultant is you're always a student and you're always a teacher at the same time. That's a very good discipline to make sure that you don't believe your own narrative that you made up in your head. So I think it's really important. Frameworks and logic.
0: Well, I'm sure some of those older characters, though have quite a bit of wisdom that you maybe encountered as you've dealt with them. Has anyone been particularly memorable that you've encountered um, that you can share?
1: without a doubt, my late boss John Casey. So John, one of the best lessons I ever got, and this is where wisdom does work. This is where wisdom, this is the part that you can't replace. Where were we? We were in an airport, I think, in Pittsburgh, and we were in the lounge and I was younger and I was frustrated. I'm like, I don't understand why people don't get what's happening. Why are we still going through with clients and talking about the same problems over and over again? And he said, Ben, he goes, there's one thing about this industry you got to remember. He says, it's about trust. It's about people. It's about relationships. He said, if you can figure all of that out and get people's trust and figure out how the relationships connect them to one another... So the rest is just math, and you can have some kid do it. He was right. this particularly this financial services industry, asset management, unlike banking, unlike insurance, you don't need a lot of infrastructure. It doesn't depend a lot on the capital markets' plumbing. It doesn't require massive scale to start. It really just requires that you have an idea and the ability to get at the market. And as a result, it emphasizes the importance of the people in the system because we have the right people and the right talent. All of that lightning in the bottle can get developed without it. It doesn't matter how big your bottle is. So that still stays with me from that conversation. I mean, that's where wisdom trumps logic. It's thinking through not how people can do things, but why they want to do them. That's just as important when you're trying to figure out how to advise leadership in an asset management firm on how to do things.
0: Just coming off that, when you said you're advising leadership, it's very people-focused. How much time are you spending on culture within asset managers today? Do you have, is it one size fits all? What makes a successful culture one place have the same hallmarks, or does it really vary based on the people behind it?
1: It's a great question. We spend a lot of time on culture. I don't think we or the client Probably spends enough on it. It's viewed as something that's part of the bedside manner, let's call it, and not something that's a critical competitive advantage it, it should be i think I think your point's really valid. The idea of culture in an asset manager is usually shorthand for giving portfolio managers autonomy. you know so in other words, we have to make sure that everybody feels they can make the decisions and and that's that's important. but increasingly, I think it's a number of things it's can we attract the right talent? So do we have a culture where people want to show up at work? Can we attract talent that can be a team? So there's a lot of need for individual decision making and portfolio management. But the ability to bring people in that can sense how to make the sum greater than the parts, that is a trick. That's leadership. And and I think that's probably the third and biggest thing is... A leadership culture in asset management. It's going through a generational transition. Many CEOs are retiring, and as new leaders come in, they're younger. They have more experience running the business side of asset management. They've gone through ups and downs, and so they they've built that out. And they know that to get change done, to get big transformation done, which is industry needs on a number of levels, they have to be able to motivate people to do it, and that's all cultural. So I think. These are the levers in leadership that we probably don't spend enough time on. It's uh, what are the right products? What's the right way to distribute it? How do you get the numbers to work? But none of that will help if you can't get people motivated to make risky change as a team. That's the intangible competitive advantage that's that's hard to create.
0: Well, here, here to that. My last question is around Eddie words of wisdom, creed, or motto, besides those wonderful words from John Casey that you've you've shared with us already, that you can leave us with? Anything that made an impression on you that, or maybe that you would advise your younger self?
1: Oh, I can tell you what I advise my younger self. Don't talk as much. (laughs) The power of listening and when you're delivering advice is really important. There's a natural proclivity. I had it. I certainly had it. I had it in spades to talk in meetings, to talk about what you know, to gain credibility, to feel comfortable that people, particularly leaders that are more experienced than you, to feel justified that you have a seat at the table, right? So you're very quickly trying to invest in all this conversation. When in reality, the best thing you can do is start just by asking people what they're trying to do. I know it sounds simplistic, but that question tends to ground leadership in any advisory situation very quickly and here's what my problem is. And then you can have an honest conversation. So I would definitely take my younger self aside and say, shut up, open your ears, listen a little bit more. And people tend to have for leadership problems and for business problems, people usually already have elements of the solution at hand and in their mind. The job there is to help them sort through it and connect the dots. And so the best way to do that is to let them get everything onto the table so that you can start doing that. So that's happily, I think, younger people that I've worked with over the past 15, 20 years actually do listen more. And they have that natural ability. I don't know what that's from, but I've been learning from them, particularly recently. And that's been really helpful for me.
0: Well, Ben, I'm glad you did talk here. This is when you were supposed to talk in this context. And the talking has been just as clear as insightful as the writing, which I will put links to in the show notes. And is really has been a great, I think we've really dug into a lot of that 25 years of knowledge here. You may be a consultant, but what I'm hearing is you're also a coach, a counselor, and so much more than what we think of as a consultant might be. So thank you very much for coming here and sharing your insights with us.
1: Well, thank you very much for the conversation. This has been great. You've asked terrific questions. So this was a wonderful conversation.
0: I'm Ethan Devitt. Thank you for listening to the 50 Faces Podcast. If you liked what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more inspiring investors and their personal journeys, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice and all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest.
1: Just some.